Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to First Free Church. Thanks so much for being here as we continue in this series called Created to Connect, God's Design for Intimacy and Gender. Uh, Before we get into the meat of the message today, um, I'm Adam, by the way. Nice to meet all of you. If you're new here today, you know, last week I was in our Connect group in between the services, and there were people there who had been coming to our church for at least two months and had never seen me uh, because I was on sabbatical. And so I got to meet them for the first time. And uh, so if you are new, would, would, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, you can come up after the service and say hi. Or go to efree.org slash connect and fill out our connect card. would love to get you plugged into a group and involved in the church and just be a part of the, the church body here. Not just an attender, but a participant in God's church. A couple of other things to make sure you know about today. It's a really exciting day for us because we're going to vote on our new pastor of family ministries after this service. So there'll be a short very short business meeting, I promise, in this room right after this this service. If you have kids who are down in Kid Connection in the nursery or preschool ages, there will be child care offered, but you'll have to go down and check them out of normal Kid Connection and into the child care for the business meeting. Um, If you have kids that are above the age of preschool, you can bring them in here with you. It's not going to be that long. They will be fine for the 15 minutes that we do the business meeting and and that should be okay. And then also later on today, we have a baptism service going on. We've got about 20 people who are going to be baptized today, and it's going to be awesome. So I would love for you to come out for that at 5.30. We'll be serving dinner. It's free in the north lobby out there. And then we'll be in the activity center for a worship service. And then after that, we're actually going to do the baptisms in the lobby, which you may have seen our baptismal out there set up in the lobby. It'll be a different way of doing things. Logistically, it was just something that we had to do this time because of other events going on. But we actually think it'll be really cool. So you may want to be here for this one, and and we'll we'll see how it all goes. But I'm excited about it. So we're in this series called Created to Connect, and a couple of weeks ago we started it with some foundation stones to try to set the stage for what we're going to be teaching the next few weeks. Just to make sure you understand that as we're going through this, we start with some presuppositions, some basic operating principles that not everybody does. And so some of the things we say may not make sense to you, but for those that are followers of Jesus and believe in God's word and believe that it's true as we do, this is what we believe God's word teaches. And so that's what we want to communicate to everyone. Last week, we talked about some counterfeit foundation stones. We talked about intimacy and identity in that. And we're going to build on that today because last week I made the case that relational intimacy is so much more than sexual intimacy. There's a lot more to it than that. And we can't boil it down to that. But the whole point of this series is to drill down into that sexual intimacy piece. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about God's design for sexual intimacy today. And how is it, how is it set up and uh, how does he want us to live? Let me start off with a little illustration. I want to show you a picture that I took a couple of years ago. This is, well, let me see if you can guess what this is. It'll be really hard. Anybody guess what that is? Okay, I think you all got it right. Good job, Grand Canyon. I know that wasn't particularly hard. Um, I love this picture because I took it right after my wife and I decided kind of randomly spur of the moment to take a trip to see this. Now, we weren't here when we decided that. We were in Phoenix, so it made a little bit more sense. But it was the day we were supposed to fly back to St. Louis, and that morning, 
Jenny said, you know, wouldn't it be crazy if we just took a trip up to see the Grand Canyon before our flight? It was a little ways away, but we did it. And we drove through Flagstaff and through the desert and through the forest, and we ended up in this big uh, land of trees, just trees everywhere. And we knew we must be getting close, but we couldn't see anything that let us know, yeah, we're there at the Grand Canyon. So we just keep driving through the forest and through the trees. And then all of a sudden, the trees open up, and that vista is what we saw. It was, it was amazing. It literally took our breath away and brought tears to our eyes just, just to think of this incredible, vast thing that was in front of us. Uh, we couldn't believe it. it was the most amazing thing we'd, we'd ever seen. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon and know what I'm talking about? Isn't it amazing? It is so, so cool. Now let me show you another picture. Here's another picture. Very similar. Similar picture. It's basically the same picture, but printed on a canvas and on a wall. Now, not actually, that's just a Photoshop thing, but you can imagine that that's hanging in someone's living room. Let me ask you, would you pay hundreds of dollars for a plane ticket and travel across the country to go see that picture in someone's living room? Probably not. Would you do that to see the Grand Canyon? Yeah, because it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. Now, that, that picture hanging on the wall, that's a beautiful picture, if I do say so myself. I did take it after all. And that picture has special meaning to me because it captures a moment that was so incredible for my wife and I, that was so meaningful to us. So that, that picture is very valuable, and, and even hanging on the wall, that, that's an amazing thing to see. But is it as good as the real thing? No. The picture points to something that's bigger and better. The picture is beautiful, yes, but it points to something that's even more beautiful and more valuable. And I want you to hold that concept in your mind. As we talk about sex today, because we're going to get into God's design for it and how it points to something that is bigger and better. We'll go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start with how God made people to begin with and God's design for marriage and for sex. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So here's the situation. God creates the universe and the earth and all the sea creatures and the land animals, and he creates this man called Adam. And for the animals, he gives each of them a partner so they can reproduce And fill the earth with their kind. But for Adam, he creates no partner. Why would he do that? He intentionally leaves Adam alone for a little bit. And then he lines up the animals and brings them to Adam one by one. So that Adam can go through the checklist and be like, all right, this one's pretty cool. Looks neat. We're going to call that a tiger. 
Not a fit for me, though. Next, this one's kind of funky, a little, little odd-looking. That's a flamingo. Not a fit for me. Next, okay, this one is, God, what were you thinking with the platypus? But that's a funky animal. Next, and no match for Adam was found. And you think about that, God did that on purpose. God intentionally left Adam without a partner. Why did he do that? So that then when he does create a partner for Adam, what happens? Adam appreciates his partner. He cherishes his partner. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is this, from the very beginning, this linkage, this interconnectedness. This is not a separate type of creature. This is not even an independently created being that God brought to Adam. This is a part of Adam that is made into a partner for him. And God's message to Adam through that is, this is special. You better appreciate this. You better cherish this. Because you've seen what else I have to offer. And it is not a fit. And this is made special for you. Custom designed for you. Appreciate it. Cherish it. That's how God made people to begin with. From Adam's own flesh. And then Moses, who was the one inspired to write this story by the Holy Spirit. So he wrote down this history for us. Moses says in Genesis 2.24, in the next verse, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the New Living Translation does a really nice job there of making this just a very understandable expression, the two are united into one. However, the literal translation is the two become one flesh. It's actually an allusion to sexual intimacy, the physical oneness that takes place in marriage. They become physically one, united physically in their marriage. And so what I want you to see, first of all, is that marriage is a divine institution. It is not just a contractual agreement between two parties that humans came up with just to kind of make this whole family thing work a little bit better. Marriage itself is actually a divine institution where a man and a woman leave their families and they come together and they form a union, not just an agreement to work together, but a physical union where there is actual sexual intimacy involved in that union. That is God's design for marriage. Now, of course, that design gets tarnished when Adam and Eve sin against God. Adam and Eve, they they break all of this. God God wanted beings who would choose to freely reciprocate his love for them, but if they're going to do that freely, then they have to have the option to not do that. And so they have the opportunity to love something more than God. And Eve, when tempted by Satan, chose to love ambition and power over God. That was a choice that she made, to prioritize love of something else over God. And Adam, when given the opportunity and tempted by Eve, chose to love Eve over God. And so both of them chose to love something more than they loved God, and in doing that, they brought rebellion against God into their family, which they passed on to their children and passes down to each of us. But still, the institution of marriage as something God originally designed for the human race stands, and his design for how people were to come together. I want to show you how God views marriage and why God sees marriage as such an important thing. We're going to go to Malachi chapter 2 for a minute here. In Malachi chapter 2, We read this, you cry out, why has the Lord abandoned us? I'll tell you why, because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made to each other on your wedding day when you were young. Isn't that interesting? God witnessed your wedding vows, whoa, but you have been disloyal to her. Though she remained your faithful companion, the wife of your marriage vows. So God is a witness 
to our marriage vows. God created this marriage institution, and then he's a witness to the vows. Now, literally, the word there is for a covenant. It's a covenant that you make with each other that God is a witness to. Proverbs 2 says, Wisdom will save you from the immoral woman, from the seductive words of the promiscuous woman. She has abandoned her husband and ignores the covenant she made before God. So God is a witness there to the covenant we make when we get married. Marriage is a covenant witnessed by God. That's point number two. Marriage is a covenant witnessed by God. Being faithful in marriage isn't just about the other person. It's also about the creator who designed this whole institution called marriage and then is a witness to it. And when we engage in sex outside of marriage, as Proverbs talks about, as Malachi talks about, you break that covenantal vow that you made, not just between you and another person, but before God as a witness. Hebrews 13, 4 says, give honor to marriage. And remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. I throw that passage from Hebrews in there. Just in case you thought this was an old covenant thing. Yeah, that's, that's Malachi. That's Genesis. That's Proverbs. You know, that was old covenant arrangement now. But we're more advanced now. We're more progressive now. We, we see new ways of doing things. And it's like, no, this has not changed. God's institution of marriage from the very beginning as a covenant that he designed has not gone away. In fact, it actually has no direct connection to the old covenant or the new covenant or the Noahic covenant. This predates all of those. If you've ever read or watched Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan is talking about the deeper magic that the white witch doesn't know about that was before all of that, that's kind of what you can think of this as. This is like, this predates the old Mosaic covenant, the marriage covenant that God designed from the very beginning when he created the first two people. That's when God set up the institution of marriage. And we see in both the Old and the New Testaments how God values that covenant and expects it to be kept faithfully. So point number three is that sex outside of marriage breaks the covenant made with God. It's a covenant that's made with God. He's not only a witness, but he's a party to this covenant. It's an amazing thing to think about. The God of the universe that created all things and created this institution called marriage and created this idea of physical union within the marriage and talked about it from the very beginning as this special thing, that he values that so much that he would say, I'm going to judge people who break that. That means a lot to him. That's valuable to him. That comes from the book of Hebrews. God still values marriage and does not want us to break that or be sexually immoral. Now, to those who don't have God in their life and don't believe in the foundation of stones that we believe in, marriage is just a contract. Marriage is just a a social contract made between two people. It could be of any kind of different arrangement, whatever they find to be acceptable, and it's there for pleasure, and it's there for, or sex rather, is there for pleasure and there for procreation. Um, and, and that agreement of, of a marriage contract is to maybe live together and maybe have some kids together for as long as we both shall, what? It's actually not for as long as we both shall live. It's for as long as we both shall love, right? Even if we say as long as we both shall live, the way we look at marriage today is, I have feelings of love for you, therefore I will get married to you, and I will stay committed to you as long as I still have feelings of love for you. And as soon as I don't have feelings of love for you, then all bets are off. At least that's how we treat marriage today, isn't it? We don't have the idea that it's this sacred covenant designed by God that we're not supposed to break, even if we don't feel like we love the other person anymore. Real love is a commitment 
that is sometimes accompanied by feelings, but it always results in action. And sometimes those feelings aren't there. And real love says, I will continue to show love to you even when I don't feel like loving you. But the way our world treats marriage today is, it's just a contract, it's an agreement, it can be broken if you, if you don't feel like it anymore. It's very different than how God designed marriage to be. God says that marriage is something so much more than that. And it points to something bigger and better. Jesus talks about this a little bit in Matthew chapter 19. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, just as a side note, this is one of the reasons why I believe that Adam and Eve were real historical people. I think they really existed. And there's a debate right now in Christian circles about the, what they call the historicity of Adam and Eve. Did they really exist or not? Or is that just kind of a metaphor, an analogy, and they, they weren't actually real people? But it seems like the way Jesus talks about them, that he affirms the literal realness of the history that Moses wrote down for us. And so he says, hey, haven't you read the scriptures? God made them male and female. And, and this explains, he quotes Moses, why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That phrase united into one, again, means they become one flesh. It's speaking of the sexual union between them. And then Jesus says, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Not let no one split apart what two people just decided to enter into agreement over, but what God has joined together. There is, there is a divine element of union that happens when a man and a woman come together and say those wedding vows and enter that marriage covenant where God says, I am uniting these two from my perspective as far as he's concerned. And so Jesus says, God is a part of this, a much bigger part of this than most people realize. And not only that, Jesus reaffirms this idea of the two becoming one flesh of the physical union in marriage. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that sexual union is central to the marriage covenant. That this is not just something that sort of gets tacked on. It's not something that's meant to be separated. It is an integral part of the marriage covenant. It was designed to function that way. And over and over, God says, sexual intimacy is designed for this marriage covenant. Don't use it outside of that. That's not how it was designed. In fact, I will judge those who are sexually immoral and abuse it outside of that marriage covenant. That's how God designed this to work. Paul explains it even further in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read a larger passage to you. This passage brings up a lot of interesting questions that are not within the scope of the message today. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge that. We're going to read it, though, just so that we can have the full context. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Paul says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, here we are again, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, or become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church 
are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There we see it again, the two coming together, a man and a woman united as one in the marriage covenant and with sexual intimacy as a core part of that. And this passage in Ephesians gives us a new point that I want to make, but first let me review the first four we've been through just to make sure we've got those. Number one, marriage is a divine institution, we learned in Genesis chapter 2. Secondly, marriage is a covenant that's witnessed by God, Malachi says, and Proverbs says. Three, sex outside of marriage breaks the covenant made with God. Hebrews talks about that. And four, sexual union is central to the marriage covenant. We've actually seen that throughout these passages, how the idea of becoming one flesh is tied in with that marriage covenant in every place. But now in Ephesians 5, we get something a little new. Marriage and sex are pictures that represent something bigger and better. Look again at verse 32. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are Marriage and sex are an incredible union designed by God, part of a divine mystery, which is the union between God and his people, God and his church, Christ and his church. Practically speaking, sex inside of a marriage is a way of continually reinforcing the marriage covenant, bringing together one of the most intimate expressions possible between two people. It's pleasure, yes. It's procreation, yes. But it's also a reminder of that covenant and something God designed to take place there from the very beginning. Now, what does the world do with all of this? Well, the world takes this thing that was created by God to be a part of this marriage covenant and designed to continually reinforce that marriage covenant And the world separates it from the marriage covenant and tries to make it everything that God did not make it. It distorts what that sexual intimacy is supposed to be so that it's no longer really connected with the marriage covenant at all, even though that's how God designed it to take place. As important as the marriage covenant is, though, it's a picture of something bigger, something better. Even that sexual intimacy Paul says, is a picture of the union that God wants to have with us and Christ with his church. And so he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and sacrificed his life for her. And Paul says that Christ and the church are just like a man and a woman becoming one in a marriage covenant and through sex. Check out this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promise you, as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. See, there is this marriage relationship that that Paul uses to talk about our relationship with God. And in Revelation chapter 21, John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. See, the marriage relationship was designed by God as the closest example we can have to understanding the closeness and the union and the intimacy and the exclusivity that God wants to have in relationship with us. Paul says this is an illustration of that. Marriage and the two becoming one flesh are an illustration, a picture 
of something bigger and better, how God wants to have a close, intimate relationship with us. And marriage is supposed to be this kind of exclusive covenant where we ought to be able to point to marriage and say, now, you know how no one would cheat on their spouse, right? You know how that's like unheard of. It's this exclusive relationship just between the two of you. That's how God designed it. Well, you, then you shouldn't cheat on God either. That's the picture. Just like you wouldn't cheat on your wife or your husband, you shouldn't bow down to idols. You shouldn't worship other gods before him. You shouldn't love anything else over him. The two are the same picture. The one is supposed to be this relationship that points us to a relationship with God that is so unique and special and close and trusting and vulnerable and exclusive. You're not supposed to serve other gods but God. And those two things are linked. You're not supposed to cheat on your spouse. You're not supposed to engage in the sexual intimacy outside of the marriage covenant the way God designed it. That's the way this whole thing was meant to work. Now, of course, the world has distorted that and perverted that in so many ways. And what happens now is we can't even point to marriage as that kind of example that I just gave. Because the world has done a wonderful job. And, and if you've paid attention throughout the series, you know I believe Satan and his forces have done a wonderful job. They're smart. Of influencing our people, our culture, and in many cases, even our Christian circles, to think that marriage is just an agreement between two people. That's all it is. That it wasn't this special, unique covenant designed by God from the very beginning for a specific purpose. And that it's not this picture of the relationship God wants to have with us. It's just an agreement between two people. And sex, you know, it happens in marriage, happens outside of marriage. It's really, it's not that big of a deal. It's casual. It's no strings attached. And so it doesn't carry the meaning that God communicates to us in his word. Marriage and sex are a picture of something bigger and better. You can think of communion the same way. Communion is a picture of something bigger and better. When we take the body and the blood in the form of the bread and the juice, we are doing that as an example of a picture of something bigger and better. And it's covenantal too. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, this cup represents the, the new covenant that's made with my blood. And so there's this picture that God gives us that we can do something tangible, that we can do in remembrance as an understanding of something bigger and better, a covenantal relationship that God has with us. Baptism is the same way. Baptism is a picture of something bigger and better. People joining that new covenant. Baptism isn't the thing. Baptism isn't what saves you. But baptism is a picture of that bigger and better thing. In the same way, marriage is a picture of a bigger and better thing. So if that's the design for marriage and sex, and if our world is constantly distorting that, and our culture is constantly perverting that in a way that it doesn't even look like what God made it to be, it's understandable then that one of the things we struggle with the most is sexual faithfulness. Faithfulness in our marriage covenant. Sexual immorality. And adultery. And, and many of us have engaged in those types of things, and many of us have been hurt by other people engaging in those types of things. And so what I want to do now is talk about how God views those who mess up. What does God do with people? If this is such a big deal to God, and he says, I'm going to judge people that break this, and this is my design for it, and I don't want anyone to violate this design and rebel against this design that I have for marriage and sexual intimacy, then how does he view those people that mess up? Is he just done with them? Are they damaged goods? Just shame heaped upon them? What do we do with that? What does God do with that? Thankfully, we don't have to wonder because we can actually see because God came down to be with us and he interacted with people who were caught in all kinds of sexual brokenness and we can look at his accounts and see how did God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, treat people 
who were broken sexually. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman who's lived a very promiscuous life. She's been with six different men that we know of. In and out of marriages, what does Jesus do? Does he shame her? Does he condemn her? No. He points out her sin, yes, but then he reveals himself as the Messiah. He wasn't there to condemn her, but to redeem her out of that condition, to take what she and others had broken and make it new again. In John chapter 8, Jesus encounters this woman who is caught in the act of adultery, and the religious leaders bring her to him, and they want to stone her to death, which was the old covenant law. But Jesus, instead of wanting to punish her, he doesn't pick up a stone. He draws on the ground, and then he says, hey, whoever doesn't have any sin, you throw the first stone. And everybody walks away. Jesus turns to the woman, and he says, where are your accusers? Is anyone still condemning you? No, she says. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. That last phrase is really important because it would be easy to read into the compassion and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus and say, he doesn't really care what you do about this. He doesn't really care what you do. It's your body. You, whatever you want to do with other people, whatever arrangement you want to have, God doesn't really care anymore. No, no, no. Jesus says, go and sin no more. I read an article this week from a, a woman that claims to be a, a Christian pastor, and she's giving sexual advice, and it represents very well the kind of thinking that has come out of the world and even into the Christian culture in many ways. Here's what she said. Jesus' message is one of love and radical inclusiveness for both men and women and of people with differing sexual lifestyles. For example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus shocks his disciples by revealing himself to the Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and is currently cohabitating with another man. He chooses her to spread the message that he is the Savior, but he doesn't tell her to marry the man with whom she is cohabitating. And in one of the most quoted passages of the New Testament, Jesus refuses to condemn the woman accused of adultery. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And of course, they all depart. Now, she stops the passage there and goes on to make her point about how Jesus is accepting of whatever you want to do with regards to sexual intimacy. But she did leave off that last little phrase, go and sin no more. Because that didn't fit the message she was trying to communicate. And yet, over and over in Scripture, God says, the marriage covenant is a big deal to me. I made this, I designed this, I actually designed this for you to be a good thing for you, to help you, to protect you. I gave you this awesome thing called sex so that the two can become one within this marital covenant that I made for you. And if you go outside of that design, it's going to be bad for you. There are going to be consequences, natural and divine consequences. In fact, because it's rebellion against me, he says there's going to be judgment for going outside of those consequences. And so we see that marriage and sexual intimacy are a big deal to God. But at the same time, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about people who've messed up. That doesn't mean he wants to throw them away. That doesn't mean that they're damaged goods. In fact, there's an argument to be made that God actually appreciates the people who have messed up in this way even more. Let me tell you where I get that from. This comes from Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited over to the home of a Pharisee named Simon, and they're having a dinner together. And while he's there, this woman shows up right away, and everybody knows she's a promiscuous woman. She's a sexually immoral woman. She's some kind of prostitute or a very loose woman. 
And she comes in, and she gets down by Jesus' feet, and she's weeping. She's crying. Tears are flowing from her eyes, so much so that it's dripping down her face and onto his feet. And in a panic, she doesn't know what to do. She grabs the only thing she has, her hair, and starts trying to dry the tears off Jesus' feet. Because what else is she going to do? And all of the people who are watching this are thinking, What is going on here? We know who that is. We don't want to be seen anywhere near her. If she were near my feet, I would try to like kick her away because I don't want anything to do with her. And Simon, the the Pharisee who invited Jesus over, he's thinking to himself, you can see this in verse 39 of Luke 7, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. There was nothing but shame and judgment coming from Simon the Pharisee for this woman. Now, Jesus could read his mind. And so Jesus responded with this parable in verse 41. He says, A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to another. So we've got a 10x loan compared to the other one. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt that's right jesus said then he turned to the woman and said to simon get that visual in your mind look at this woman kneeling here when i entered your home you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair you didn't greet me with a kiss but from the time i first came in she has not stopped kissing my feet You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A person who has been forgiven little only shows little love. But a person who's been forgiven much shows great love. For some reason, Satan has convinced many Christians that the appropriate response to sexual brokenness is shame and judgment and and disgraceful behavior. And Satan, at the same time, has convinced the world that the only response they will find from Christians is judgment and criticism and shame. And yet what we see from Jesus is the exact opposite. It's almost like the more broken you are, the more appreciation and love you have to show for his forgiveness, and so the more special it is, the more celebration there is when someone who's really messed up comes to Jesus, repents of their sin, turns from their sin, and is redeemed by Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, you're, you've heard it many times before. It says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Awesome verse. I'm sure many of you have memorized that. You've probably heard that, but you can't stop there. You have to go to verse 17, which says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through And when you study how Jesus interacted with people who were sinners, caught in sin, all sorts of broken lifestyles, this really interesting pattern develops where you see that Jesus had words of harsh correction for religious legalists and hypocrites, but he had words of loving correction for those caught in sexual sin. 
It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want sexual purity. It doesn't mean that God still doesn't uphold this divine institution of a marriage covenant and sexual intimacy exclusively within that covenant of marriage. It doesn't mean that all of that is not still true. But listen, Jesus did not preach a culture of purity as has often been preached in the church. Jesus preached a culture of purity and forgiveness. Too often, churches have preached purity and shame. But Jesus... Preach forgiveness when there's brokenness, when there's repentance. Paul says, what, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. It's not that Jesus' compassion and warmth and love should make us say, well, you do you, and I'll do me, and whatever you want to do is fine. No, not at all. God designed this to work a certain way. And it's loving to tell you that God meant it to work this way. And if you're outside of that design, it's not good for you. And I don't tell you that because I want to shame you or judge you. I tell you that because Jesus wants to redeem you and to forgive you. And there's redemption for all of those who have messed up. And you know what? In the same way, there is healing and peace and something better for people who have been impacted by others who have messed up. And have hurt, been hurt by others going outside of God's design for sexual intimacy. Do you see how the world and, and Satan and, and people who are not following after God can take something God meant for good and turn it around and pervert it and make it so that it's no longer even close to a picture of what it's supposed to represent? The closeness that God wants to have with you. Whatever kind of life you've had, whatever kind of brokenness you come to him with, Jesus wants to redeem that. He's not here to judge you even though you deserve to be judged. He's here so that if you will turn to him and believe in him, he can redeem you and make you into a new person. So that in the end, you can be a part of what the Bible calls the bride of Christ. Holy and without fault, without blame. Not because you were perfect and lived a perfect life, but because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross makes it possible for that to be, take the judgment and pay for all of your sin so that you can spend eternity with God in, in what the Bible describes as a marriage union. And the marriage covenant that we experience on this earth and even the sexual intimacy that's meant to reinforce that covenant is a picture of something that is bigger and something that is better. I'm going to ask everybody if you just bow your heads right now for a moment just so that you can think. Think and pray. Maybe there are some people here today who resonate with the sexual brokenness and have messed up in a lot of different ways. And they need to come before God right now and confess that sin. Admit that it's wrong. And ask for his help to get through it and to overcome it. You can't do it alone. But you can do it through Jesus. With Christ, all things are possible. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and he's just and he'll forgive your sins and he will cleanse you from unrighteousness. But you've got to confess, you've got to understand that it's wrong, those things that I did and I don't want to do them anymore and I need Jesus' help to, to help me live in that. I know sexual sin can be such an addictive thing. It's, it's so dangerous for that reason. But that's why you need a close relationship, intimate relationship with God to help you break that and make sure you're living according to God's design for marriage and for sexual intimacy. Now, maybe you are a, a Christian who the part that resonates with you the most is the shame part, either because you've experienced that from other people or because you've been the one who's been shaming others. Maybe it's even in your heart. It's just an attitude that you have. Maybe the first thing when you find out that there's sexual sin is your first thought is just disgrace and shame and disgust instead of compassion and love. 
What's the response Jesus would have? We've seen that today. God, I pray that you would help us to have that response in our own hearts. Help us to look at every single human being as someone that you love and you value and they're made in their image and they're broken and sinful just like I'm broken and sinful, maybe in some different ways, but that you came here to redeem and restore every single one of those people so that they believe in you, none would perish but have eternal life. You didn't come to condemn but to save. I pray that you'd help us to be messengers of that salvation. I pray that you'd help us to live in it and rest in it in our own lives, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.